0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by my personal yenta, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika.
1: Hi. I see myself more as a living human Sarah, but you know what? I'll take Yenta.
0: But Anika, in case the listening audience does not recognize the references we've already made, why
1: don't you remind them of our clue from last episode? Why, yes, indeedy. So the clue was that for the film adaptation of this show, Frank Sinatra's agent pushed hard for him to get the role of the lead, which seems insane. And it is insane when you consider that the show was Fiddler on the Roof, and thus, the part was Tevia, the beloved paterfamilias of the family at the center of Fiddler. Very much not Frank Sinatra.
0: But yes, Frank Sinatra wanted to be up for the role of Tevia in the film adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof with a book by Joseph Stein, music by Jerry Bach, and lyrics by Sheldon Harnick. And that will bring us to the speed test.
2: Hudson's 4X doesn't matter. Hudson's 4X doesn't, matter, matter, doesn't matter. Hudson's 4X doesn't matter. Hudson's 4X doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, Hudson's 4X doesn't matter.
0: Where Anika puts one minute on the clock, and I do my best to summarize Fiddler on the Roof in one minute to give us all a brief refresher of what happens in the show.
1: Yes, indeed. A show where a fair amount happens. So we'll see how you do.
0: I, I again, I have, con- I actually have confidence in myself for this one. I do. I do
1: too, actually. I, I have a good feeling about this one. So,
0: but again, famous last words.
1: Famous last words. All right. Ready? Yep. Three, two, one, plot.
0: So Tevya has five daughters. He lives in Anatevka with his wife, Golda, and his oldest, Seidel, is like of marrying age, and they're getting Yenta, the local matchmaker, to match her up with someone. She basically tries to set her up with Laser Wolf, who is the local butcher, a very good match, but Seidel is in love with Model the Tailor, And basically begs her dad to let her marry Muddle, and he allows it. And the marriage, and then basically Huddle then wants to marry Perchik. uh, And uh, then his third daughter Hava wants to marry uh, Fiedka, who is outside of uh, the, is not. Jewish um, and is Russian, and the Russians begin to terrorize the Jewish communities. And Anatevka, and by the end of the show, and so he disowns her. And by the end of the show, uh, they have they all must leave. And Anatevka.
1: So wow, perfect. There's one second left.
0: Okay, great. I think that's pretty much it.
1: That's it. I think that's really it. I mean, there's really not a subplot. It's all Tevya and his story with his daughters, and yeah, yeah, you got it in there.
0: I I think it's that's why I was like "Eh, actually I think it's okay and I mentioned most of the characters I mean uh, you know some people debate how to pronounce some of the names uh, depending on uh, that but we will probably uh, horribly Americanize them because neither of us are of the Jewish faith or culture so true so uh, fair warning and we will do our best so with that we arrive at Why God Why
2: Why God
0: why today where we talk about the big idea of the show and why the authors wanted to tell it and what the resounding theme is of the show and fiddler on the roof has a very well-known story about how the authors think about the show uh, because it's how jerome robbins pushed them to write the opening number tradition the show is about tradition i think that that is certainly accurate but i think it's better to say that the show is centrally about the relationship between change and tradition. And I would I would personally couch the discussion about what it's about under the term change rather than tradition, because ultimately it is about all these characters confronting change and what that means. Um, but Annika, how would you start that discussion?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think this one is deceptively tricky because I find that it really is about a debate, not it's not just embrace your tradition or uh hold on to these rituals and and things that you have in your community it it really is a man struggling with his own community his own traditions his own rituals and also what is the right thing whether all of those are the right thing uh where that lies so so yeah i agree that the heart of it is really in tevya and his relationship with his daughters and his community. Um, and how you
0: hold on to those traditions through changing times and changing culture and all those things. I mean, I think, yes, absolutely. Like, that's...
1: Yeah, what it's about. yeah, and and I mean, you know, as so many are, about how to be a, a good person and do the right thing when you have a lot of different forces that are indicating contradictory right things, you know? I And I think the show actually... Leaves some of them on a really interestingly ambiguous note.
0: it's so complex. There are, there are such complexities, particularly in the role of Tevye, which is why it's a coveted role in musical theater.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really fantastic role.
0: So, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Fiddler on the Roof?
1: We can never go
2: back to before.
1: So, Fiddler on the Roof, or Fiddler, as we will probably call it as many people call it because every show has to have a nickname um we'll also talk about that title a little bit later probably it's based on several short stories by the writer Sholem Aleichem uh who is known as the Jewish Mark Twain which I love and more on that in a little bit um Sholem Aleichem is someone that I did not know about this person and I'm you know with Damon Runyon I'm like there are all these people who are so famous around the turn of the century and a little bit later that I, I just have never heard of. And so God bless this podcast for allowing me to go down these research rabbit holes. Sholem Aleichem is a pen name. It literally translates as peace be with you in Yiddish. Um, It's the pen name of Solomon Nomovich Rabinovich, who was born in Perislav in what is now Ukraine in 1859 and was raised in a nearby shtetl. So he was very much raised in the uh, situation that he wrote about quite a bit. Yiddish was actually the third language he wrote in, but once he started writing in Yiddish, he quickly rose in fame to become probably the most most well-known Yiddish writer almost of all time, very, very popular. He wrote over 40 volumes in Yiddish, focusing on life in the shtetl with realistic characters who people really loved. And they also painted a portrait often of the people who live in shtetls dealing with adversity, which was obviously something that they had to deal with quite a lot, given the political realities at the time. Which were basically that for over 100 years, the czars of Russia, the ruling powers of Russia, were increasingly persecuting the Jewish population, uh, forcing them to live in smaller and smaller areas, limiting what they could do, when they could do it, and then occasionally having these pogroms where they would come into the shtetls, which were the villages where mostly Jews lived, and just destroying things and forcing them to move. So it was just getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, One of the stories that I love about this writer was that when Mark Twain was told that Sholem Aleichem was called the Jewish Mark Twain, Mark Twain said, please tell him I am the American Sholem Aleichem. Um, So he was really, again, very well known at the time. So much so that when he died in 1916 in New York City, his funeral drew between 100,000 and 250,000 mourners and was one, and was one of the largest funerals in the city's history. So he was really, 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 really beloved and wrote a great deal that was very familiar to a lot of people. Um, Interestingly enough, he had tried to break into the Yiddish theater and he was never successful at it. He had a lot of tries doing this, um, did not, managed to do that. So the fact that now what he's probably most known for is the stories that inspired Fiddler on the Roof is in some ways kind of sad and ironic. But when the writers of Fiddler on the Roof were originally going to adapt one of his stories, they were focusing on a different one called Wandering Stars, which is about a traveling Yiddish theater company. But then they switched to these stories that are called the Tevye the Dairyman stories. There are eight stories in which Tevye um, who is the same character that we know and love? Uh, supposedly ran into Sholom Aleichem, the writer, and told him stories about his life, including his wife and his seven daughters. The show has eliminated two of them. That's a lot of daughters. So, in the same way that in the show Tevya is talking to God, sometimes talking directly to us, um, he does that in the stories as well. But he's talking to Sholom Aleichem, the writer. So it always had this kind of conversational bent, this real guy, quote unquote, who is just telling stories about his life. Um, And these warm and wonderful stories about his own struggles, many of which made it into the show, um, more of which did not. And it's interesting because Sholem Aleichem did a stage adaptation of the stories himself, but it wasn't produced in his lifetime. It was produced a few years after his death in 1919, and it was a big hit when that happened. But... Obviously a bittersweet one, considering, you know, the first success he managed to have in theater was after he died. Um, And the interesting thing was, too, that these stories were already fairly well known before Fiddler on the Roof ever happened. Not only was there the play adaptation that Sholem Aleichem had written himself, there was a film adaptation in 1939, obviously not a musical version. Um, A play version written by Arnold Pearl that was off-Broadway in the 1950s. And then there was another musical version that was in the works by the playwright Irving Illman, which apparently had sort of folkloric tunes to it. And that one, several producers were interested in bringing to Broadway, including Rodgers and Hammerstein, but it did not end up happening. So this was definitely a set of stories that was in the zeitgeist, in the culture, before Fiddler on the Roof. They did not pick something from obscurity at all it was kind of around and fairly well known in certain circles
0: so fast forward to the fall of 1960 when a friend of the broadway lyricist sheldon harnick sends him a copy of wandering star a novel by Sholem Aleichem, and harnick read it thought it would be a wonderful musical and sent it to his frequent collaborator Jerry Bach, who often wrote music with him, who agreed that it would be a wonderful musical. They, in turn, sent it to Joseph Stein, a playwright, who said, you two are absolutely crazy. This is not a musical. But he did think that the stories of Tevye the Milkman, also written by Sholem Aleichem, might be a really great musical, and sent that back to Bach and Hartnick. They read the stories and agreed. So they had their first formal meeting in March of 1961 to discuss the musical they started off calling Tevye. They quickly found that they wanted to remain true to the spirit of the stories, but make sure they related them to today's audiences. And it kind of became a pet project for them that they all were very excited about, but they couldn't really get a lot of people on board for it. A lot of people thought the show was, quote unquote, too ethnic for Broadway, uh, which is, you know, obviously an interesting uh, thing to note for the 1960s um, but they continued at it wrote a lot of music uh, and lots of songs most notably in this period probably sunrise sunset which got closest to the authentic sound that they were hoping to capture with the show so they sent it to Hal Prince uh, then um, producer and starting to be director and Prince said that he was the wrong person for this but he was interested in Bach and Harnick's other musical, She Loves Me, which uh, he said he would do first, but he wasn't so, sh- so sold on this Tevye musical. Uh, but then Stephen Sondheim happened to attend one of their backers auditions and suggested, along with Hal Prince, that Jerome Robbins might be the perfect person to direct and choreograph the show. So they took the show to Robbins, who there were tons of timing conflicts because Robbins was so busy with the film of West Side Story and other various projects. Uh, but he was deeply interested in the show, and there's a lot written about how personal the show was for him uh, and how emotional he was throughout it because he wanted to create his family on stage. He saw a lot of himself in these characters uh, because of his roots as, uh, as a Russian Jew. But with Robbins on board, then Prince got on board. And, and even though, obviously, the writing team is hugely essential to the success that is Fiddler on the Roof— I think collectively they all agree that the show would not be what it was or is without the influence of Jerome Robbins and his direction, choreography, and kind of dramaturgy, frankly, with the show in terms of pushing them to develop it. And uh, they describe him as being like a district attorney with the show and asking what the show is about. And they would say, well, it's about Tevye and his his daughters. And like, no, 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 you're talking about the plot of the show. What is the show about? And they couldn't seem to answer that question. And finally, in a moment of ex- exasperation, they say, the show's about tradition. And Jerome Robbins says that. Write me an opening number like that. Jerome Robbins does not talk like he is an MGM boss, but um, but he did say, write a song th- about that. And that is the opening of our show. And by all accounts, that changed the entire dynamic of the show, that theme resonating throughout the piece and a musical theme that is revisited also throughout the show at, at various moments. And it's also important, I think, to know that Jerome Robbins thought of the show very circularly and thought about circular movement a lot, which becomes uh, very much a part of the staging, both of tradition and the famous uh, leaving of uh, Anatevka at the end of the show. And there's a quote from Jerome Robbins just about how much he cared about what he was putting into Fiddler on the Roof that I I think is, is really... Beautiful and helpful in understanding the the journey. Uh, He said, quote, The play must celebrate and elevate the life of the shtetl and its people. We must keep the guts, flavor, humor, color, smell, sound, gesture, and cadence of the life, but make the audience see it as a work of art, and therefore seen and felt and heard in a new way that reveals and illuminates the material above the realistic and expected, staying away from the sentimental. Which... I think is a wonderful encapsulation of what they, I think, managed to do with uh, the show. So one of the other very large influences on the show was the work of the artist Marc Chagall, uh, who Jerome Robbins frequently mentioned in conversations with designers about how he felt the show should look and be. And uh, there are tons of stories. I mean, the story of the creation of Fiddler is well documented in a number of books if you that are all very interesting, if you... Uh, want to know more but essentially that uh, where the title Fiddler on the Roof comes from is from a a painting of Chagall's that has a very large and colorful uh, fiddler kind of straddling two roofs and that um, made it on to the list of titles that they were considering with the show and apparently Hal Prince picked it and said that's the title of the show which anecdotally is said that because it had fiddler in it and so that said it was a musical uh but i think there are tons of different stories about how the show actually got that title that's just one of the ones that i think i saw probably the most but in my research but um Annika, if there's anything you want to add to that because it, it does kind of depend on what sources you read and and all and what sources you read and kind of who you believe
1: <laughs> yeah i had heard the same thing about how prance um i heard a different one too the that Jerome Robbins was just uh, very into that title as well. But I think it's interesting to, to look at the titles that they were also considering seriously, which are, I th- I mean, I think there are pl- probably many more than this, but the ones that we know are The Old Country, Tevye, Not So Long Ago, Not So Far Away, and Where Papa Come From. So...
0: Which I think really relates to how Robin saw this as a piece about his ancestry and where he came from and his people. And that is yeah. very much something that is at force while they're creating this show.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about because we're so used to the title Fiddler on the Roof, but it's kind of a weird title. <laughs> it is sort well, of like. And, a... even,
0: and even the characters of it, like, what does it mean? What yeah. does it mean to be a Fiddler on the Roof? And like Tevia says, like, oh, we're. We're as shaky as a fiddler on the roof, but that's not even clear in terms of like what the central metaphor is or anything like that. Although I saw f- some very interesting scholarship discussing what they, what people think fiddler on the roof means, so.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's just an unusual choice for a title uh, considering how it, it really is sort of tangential to the, to the piece. But I don't know if given that list, I don't know which one I would choose above it.
0: Well, now it's just so iconic. It's like, well, duh, that's the title. But yeah, yeah. You're saying it's like, I wouldn't pick any of them. I picked Fiddler on the Roof. Right. <laughs> but the other game changer in terms of the development of the show is the casting of Zero Mistel as Tevia. And Mistel and Robbins had a l- lot of past drama uh, centering around Robbins being called before the House and American Activities Committee, which, for those of you who may not know or may not remember or just a brief refresher the house and american activities committee was run by joseph mccarthy in the united states house of representatives trying to root out communism in america and would call forward witnesses to try and get them to name names of people who were affiliated with the communist party jerome robbins admitted to having some ties to the party but not actually being a communist and after a few years of interrogation and kind of scrutiny basically uh he was threatened with uh his homosexuality being revealed publicly and with that and once he was threatened with that he ended up naming names of some actors and uh filmmakers and various artists that he knew were members of the communist party and zero mostel was not on that list but had friends on that list that uh robbins named and was very very upset with him for that as many people were uh it's not just zero mostel uh but their first time really working together was when Robbins called in to be a show doctor on Funding the Capital on, on the Way to the Forum, which Zero Mistel started in as Pseudolus, And uh, that seems to be where most of their tensions were worked out. And uh, subsequently, they did Fiddler together, and they both respect each other very much as artists. And uh, so there was t- certainly some contention, but uh, they got over it. And his influence on the role of Tevia, I think, is almost beyond being able to quantify in some ways. uh, It's just, uh, he very much uh, carried the energy of that initial production and was one of the reasons people wanted to see the show because word of the mouth was that he was absolutely incredible in the role and it was the role of his career in a career that had already had many fantastic roles. So the show was constantly in development during rehearsals. Uh, The team estimates that they wrote about 50 songs for the show, 16 of which ended up in the show and Robbins would demand rewrites on the scene. And then he, they'd bring him the new scene and he'd say, well, the other one's better, so we'll keep it. And uh, interesting to note that the now very famous staging of the opening number tradition was really one of the last things they staged in rehearsal, despite Robbins having such a clear idea of what it should be and how central it was to the show. Uh, and uh, evidently they staged it in about 30 minutes, very soon before their out-of-town tryout in Detroit, which is just fascinating because that staging has remained. And you know they never didn't change it. It was 30 minutes, one and done. Uh, pretty amazing.
1: Sometimes the most brilliant things happen super fast.
0: So their out-of-town tryout in Detroit is really interesting actually uh, because the newspaper writers were on strike at the time. And so newspapers weren't being published. So. A lot of them came to see the show and wrote reviews that were never published, but all the reviews were very bad. Um, that the show was too long uh, and that word kind of got out. The only review that was published from Detroit was actually in Variety. That was um, not a very positive review and the cast and everyone seemed pretty demoralized about it. But they were rehearsing constantly during the out-of-town trial and a lot of it uh, was rehearsing a long ballet in act two where Tevia goes mad over Hava's decision to get married to Fyedka, a non-Russian, a non-Jewish Russian. And it was like 10 minutes long, and they keep, kept cutting it down and cutting it down and spending rehearsal time on it. And uh, it now exists in the show as just the Havala little uh, transition that is probably all of about two minutes and is just Hava, is traditionally just Hava dancing by herself. And a lot of the actors describe the show as being put together with Scotch tape. While they were in Detroit, just because there were so many changes and things, but as the show progressed in its run through Detroit, uh, it people started buying tickets. Word of mouth was getting really good. People seemed to really, really like the show, and slowly more reviews came in that were much warmer than the initial reviews they received. And so Hal Prince uh, is uh, says he's very thankful for that newspaper strike that people didn't really get to hear all of the bad press that they were would have gotten had it. Um, had they not been striking at the moment and they ended up going to dc and the advance word started to get back to new york that the show was something really really special the other major changes that happen in dc are the uh, writing of miracle of miracles which is now one of the uh, most famous songs in the show and the addition of the now incredibly famous bottle dance which was inspired by one of the Hasidic weddings that Jerome Robbins had been to, he saw kind of a comedian clown type character with a bottle on his head performing uh, and dancing uh, around the party. And he took that and made it into the bottle dance, which is a thrilling piece of choreography that really um, has act one ending on a, an incredibly high and celebratory, fantastic, dramatic note.
1: So once it opened on Broadway, it was, a, it was a big hit with the public pretty much right away, even though the reviews were not across the board super positive, um, including The Times, which was kind of mixed. But people were into it, and it just took off. It was nominated for 10 Tony Awards and won nine, including Best Musical. So it pretty much swept its categories. And it ended up running for a really healthy run. It was the longest running show on Broadway for a a brief time. Um, Now I think it's number 17. So, you know, that changes once we get the mega musicals in the the 80s. But it was very successful. Uh, The production earned $1,574 for every dollar that was invested in it. So that's a hit, if you ask me. And then, of course, if you're going to count the number of times that it's been back to Broadway uh, in international productions, all of these different things, there's it's been back so many times. I believe there's been six Broadway productions to date, which doesn't include the Yiddish language one that was really celebrated and was off-Broadway um, earlier this year. Rumors have it that it's not going to be gone forever. Obviously, who knows what's happening right now, but Um, there's been several Broadway revivals and several, several international productions all around
0: the world. You could almost make the case that it's the first international musical because so there were so many international productions that people just loved and adored. There's, there's a story that like, they go, like it was performing in Japan. And I think Sheldon Harnick went over to see it. And the producer, the director, someone is like, how do people, how do Americans like this musical? like why why do people like it like it's so japanese and like you know it they, they it just blends to these culture it it feels so yeah um universal in such an interesting way
1: well it's a good example of the sort of specificity is universal you know that it's actually better to have a specific story because it's easier to relate that to more things oddly enough even though it seems like it would be the other way but um, yeah, I, I love that story. It really has had interesting productions in various places. One of the things I loved uh, to read was that when it premiered in Poland in 1985, the show's authors donated their royalties to preserving the country's Jewish monuments, which I thought was lovely. And then, of course, in 1971, there was a film adaptation made uh, by United Artists, directed and produced by Norman Jewison, who, confusingly enough, given his last name, is not jewish and it did very well it was nominated for eight oscars it was one of the highest grossing films of 1971 it starred haim topol not zero mostel who jewison felt was too big his performance was going to be too big for the screen um and obviously as we said earlier famously frank sinatra was one of the people who reached out to get an audition for that part
0: um and topol actually opened the london production and worked directly with jerome robbins having previously before that done a production in Israel that was quite broader. And uh, he and Jerome Robbins worked very closely together on that London revival and a lot changed of his performance, but he really became the quintessential Tevia in so many ways. Yeah. So Anika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Miracle of Miracles. What's inside?
1: All right, so we are going to dive into Miracle of Miracles, which is a song I just really love and is great, as many songs in this score are. So this song has an interesting history. It's the song that Muddle sings when Tevye has agreed to let Muddle marry Tidal. And actually, this was not the song that originally was in this spot. There was a different song called Now I Have Everything, which now we know as Perchick's song later. And that's actually part of why this song switched. So according to Richard Altman, who was Jerome Robbins' assistant on the show, the actor Bert Convey was, was playing Perchick, and he was one of only two trained singers in the original production. And he really wanted to sing the song Now I Have Everything, which at that point was being sung by Austin Pendleton, who was playing Muddle in this same spot. Um, He thought that it was a good song for Perchick to sing when Perchick gets to marry Huddle, but he also felt like he could sing it better because he was a trained singer. He had a beautiful voice. Austin Pendleton is not a trained singer, um, could kind of get through the song and did it with such energy, but didn't wasn't doing it justice in terms of the beauty of the song, he felt. So apparently he talked to Richard Altman and said, you know, that could be Perchick's song. And also um, I could really sing that song beautifully, but also Muddle, you know, is a really religious guy. He could have a different song that was a little bit more about religion instead of this other song, which is much more secular. So Altman thought that was a pretty good idea and sneakily mentioned it to Robbins and then this song was written for Muddle, Miracle of Miracles, and Now I Have Everything was switched over to Perchick. So Bert Convy got what he wanted and got the song that he wanted, which is a little bit ironic ultimately because I think Miracle of Miracles is much more memorable than Now I Have Everything. So ultimately I think Muddle got a better song than the one Kondi got to sing. So As I said, this is Muddle's song after he and Seidel have gotten Tevya's blessing to marry. And we've seen a fair amount of Muddle. He's been around. Um, We know that he's kind of awkward. He's very awkward, shy, just bumbling a little bit. He's been with Seidel since they were kids. They all grew up together. Um, And in this encounter that he has in the scene before this, he sort of manages to finally tell Tevya that he's asking for Seidel's hand. Um, after they've already agreed with Laser Wolf that T- Seidel will marry Laser Wolf. But he sort of bumbles it a little bit. He, he's saying it and he's kind of making a sales pitch. He's not really succeeding. Tevye doesn't even know who he's talking about at first as being this potential match for Seidel. He finally has this one moment where he's, he's able to say, I will make her happy and, um, I, you know, a poor tailor deserves love too. And then Tevya, more because really he sees Seidel's face and he realizes that Seidel loves Model than anything that Model has said, but uh, agrees to let them marry and let them basically choose their own match and be happy. So, this is the song that happens after that. And it's just a great, great song because it perfectly encapsulates all of the joy and the energy and the sort of overwhelming bliss of this moment that he never thought would happen. Muddle never thought this would, would work out. And also he's come a long way. He went from being this shy little guy who doesn't say much ever effectively um, to being able to stand up for what he wants. And so there's that too, that he's very proud of himself and Seidel's proud of him. And I think he's really seeing himself as a, as a man for the first time here. So there's all all of this. So I'm going to listen to the 2004 recording of the David Laveau directed revival um, with that starred Alfred Molina that people didn't love that much, but I'm going with this one because it has pretty much the same orchestrations as the original production, um, but you can hear them a lot better in this recording. Um, The original cast recordings rarely foreground the, the orchestra. They were recorded differently, whatever. That's a whole different thing. But so we're doing this one and you get John Cariani, the charming, warm, adorable John Cariani singing model. It's fantastic. So go listen to it. If you haven't listened to it recently, if you want to take a break, go listen to it in full. We'll, we'll listen to it, but it'll be all chunked up. So go listen to it. Come on back. All right. So if you've done that and you're back, ah, such a good song, right? So let's dive in. All right. You get a little bit of the text in this, so I'm cheating a little bit because yeah, it gets to analyze a tiny chunk of text too. But um even before you hear anything, you get this energy that's that really uh, sweeping excitement. They're, those two re- notes repeating back and forth, just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and the rhythm, which is regular and quick, it, it all just feels like a fast heartbeat. You know, you can almost feel the adrenaline that's just pumping through Muddle's uh, system here. And you get this great little thing that he says, uh, in these lines where, where Seidel says, you were wonderful. And he says, no, it's a miracle, which is so muddle because he's not taking the credit for himself. He gives it straight to God. For him, this is a real thing. He really believes this and he, he he's not going, he's a humble man. He's not going to take it for himself quite yet. And then I also love that there's, in addition to this sort of sweeping music and this energy, you get a little touch of the triangle here and there. Like the addition of something magical, something beyond, that's kind of the miracle, the miracle noise, the the heavenly noise. In addition to this irrepressible music right from the beginning, you get, right before the lyric starts, this wonderful swoop of the flute. It sounds almost like a musical swoon wonder of wonders miracle of miracles god
2: took a daniel once again stood by his side and miracle of miracles walked him through the lion's den
1: there is something so perfectly placed about the lyric wonder of wonders miracle of miracles It both perfectly captures Muddle's mood. This is the biggest wonder and the biggest miracle he can imagine. And of course, it's just the repetition is great. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. But it's also so perfectly set as a lyric. Wonder of wonders climbs up in the melody like it's on a staircase to heaven. It's just going right on up to heaven. And then miracle of miracles loops around with this sort of chaotic joy. You can just hear in both of those, everything that Muddle is feeling, it's so good. And then you get this wonderful little swoop after Daniel, which is the perfect illustration of what he's saying in those lyrics. It's like the music is drawing the picture for him as it also does with Walk Him Through the Lion Den. So you get the little swoop after Daniel, Daniel, like the music is showing you Daniel. But then unlike the rest of this, where Muddle is really carrying the melody alone, The music literally walks him through this line by carrying the the melody with him on walked him through the lion's den. So it's like the music is actually walking with him in the way that he's talking about God walking with Daniel to the lion's den. And of course you get that trumpet there too, which is really the instrument of bravery. After all, we do say someone is bold and brassy, right? Something about brass is especially brave, especially militaristic. It's an instrument you use a lot in the military. It's just something that kind of connotes bravery. And then we also get this great thing on walking through the lion's den, where the melody climbs higher and higher until you get to lion, as if it's anticipating the sighting of the lion. But then it falls back down right after you hit that high note on lion's den. It just hops back down, like the threat is neutralized there.
2: Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. I was afraid that God would frown. But like he did so long ago in Jericho, God just made a wall fall down.
1: And we get another story from the Bible of God helping someone, God doing a good thing. Again, this is all Muddle's vocabulary. He he is a religious man. He's a learned man. Um, This is how he relates to the world. He's relating this all through this knowledge that he has because he can't quite he can't quite get it in his heart yet, but he will later in the song. And we get this wonderful thing here where um, the orchestra has kind of joined in in a really active way. And the strings are doing this wonderful thing where they're sort of hopping around and then hitting the same note an octave higher and lower, um, which almost illustrates like if we're talking about Jericho and the walls coming down, it almost feels like he's building a wall there like you can see the sort of strings hopping up and down like like they're kind of climbing a flat thing and then at the end you get this fabulous percussion drum hit of the walls falling down at the end of the line interestingly enough jericho appears a lot in musical theater i feel like it also gets a shout out in anything goes when
2: moses
1: softened
2: pharaoh's heart that was a miracle
1: When God made the waters of the Red Sea part, that was a miracle too. So now Muddle's shifting gears a little bit, and the crazy energy at the beginning of the song has dissipated a little bit. He's contemplating other miracles. And I love the line, that was a miracle, because it's a little shorter than you think it will be, it's a little abrupt which feels right for Muddle. He's not really a seasoned speaker. We just saw him in this awkward exchange with Tevye. He's sort of stumbling over his own feet a lot. He's not really great at speaking clearly and with purpose. So the fact that this line feels a little abrupt feels very Muddle. He's, he's just not great at this kind of thing yet. And it also reminds me a little bit of Shakespeare when a line isn't full iambic pentameter, when it sort of stops short. Uh, the change in rhythm is always... Indic- indicative of the person's uh, mental state or that you should pay a little bit more attention to the line because something has changed for the speaker or he's realizing something and here i think it's the same thing it keeps you on your toes a little bit and it indicates that muddle is working something out which i think he is
2: but of all god's miracles large and small the most miraculous one of all Is that out of a worthless lump of clay, God has made
1: a man today. And here is Muddle's thesis for the song, part one, which is something that the music gives it full due. Um, The first two lines are anticipatory minor, and then it steps away a little. And he has these kind of two reverent chords on out of a worthless lump of clay. It almost sounds like he's giving a service, like he's in a, a holy place telling a holy story. And then of course it kicks right back into the joy of God has made a man today with these little swoops after, like d- you can hear that little do 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 do. It's like he's doing like hitch kicks. It's so delightful. And of course, again, the song uses a climbing melody so beautifully um, of all God's miracles, large and small. You know, you, it just goes up and then it comes back down a little bit building all all the way up to God in heaven and then coming back the, for the large and small, you know, both the big and the little.
2: Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, God took a tailor by the hand, turned him around, and miracle of miracles led him to
1: the promised land. So now we're only getting one verse instead of two, and he's written himself into a hor- holy story. The story of him marrying Tidal has become in his mind, a story at the level of the other miracles he sings about. He's singing about himself, obviously, when he says, God took a tailor by the hand. He's the tailor and led him to the promised land is this marriage that he can have with the woman that he loves. So I love this, that now, it's become personal after he's had this moment. He's not just talking about Bible stories. He's talking about God has made out of a lump of clay, a man himself. He's been kind of created not only uh, into bravery and into a, a real life in his mind, but also into the story of God, which is such a beautiful, for a religious man to to frame it this way is really something kind of special and and very, clever it's a really good lyric
2: when David slew Goliath yes that was a miracle when God gave us manna in the wilderness that was a miracle too
1: oh he's so excited he's shouting so good right uh, you really get the sense he doesn't do this often. He's a very sort of self-controlled character earlier. He's very shy. He kind of feels that he's never uh, worthy of speaking. Nobody pays attention really. And now he's shouting loud and clear. And he's talking about David and Goliath, which it feels like he probably thinks of himself a little bit in this story. You know, the the small man who's defeating a giant. He's a small man. He's a poor tailor who has not defeated laser wolf but he's won title over a rich butcher so that's there's probably a little bit of that there and then what i love is at the end of this verse you get this magical sound in the chimes and this little musical quote it's like a, a little musical amen uh like now he's about to get into the true finale of what he's thinking but of
2: all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all is the one I thought could never be God has
1: it's so good so at the beginning of this the music is the most reverent and grand it has been yet this is the ultimate miracle the one he never dreamed could happen and i love that we get that droopy downward facing never be it really hops down never be um god has given muddle his love title and putting it here in this way ranks it above Muddle being turned from a lump of clay into a man. It ranks it above every story he's ever heard. In his mind, he's been given the ultimate gift, which is in itself an honor. And I love the punctuation after God has given. You get each of those syllables lands so specifically because he needs to really both give credit to God because he's that kind of guy, but also he needs... So just process this. There's nothing that you can sweep over in this part. God has given. He still can't quite believe it. And the music reflects that. I mean, it just swells with joy at the end. It's just leaping for joy. All of these instruments are just being the heartbeat, are being this kind of joyous dance happening in the the orchestra itself. It's such a great song. And you just... At the beginning of it, you know, muddle a little bit. And at the end of it, you just love him so much. Who could not love this guy? Because he's both so humble and so clearly cares about his own religious views in a really thoughtful and um, sweet way. But also, I mean, who doesn't want to marry this guy? This is, this is the way that he frames being able to marry Tidal that it's the biggest miracle that has ever happened that that there's no purer joy that could possibly be than this it's just a really great song and it captures joy and excitement and adrenaline and overwhelmingness in such a beautiful way that it's it's become one of the favorites from the show and i really can see why so thanks bert conby because we ended up with this
0: And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria?
1: How do
2: you solve a problem like Maria?
0: Where we talk about some of the issues that the show experiences, either internal or external to it. So I think, you know, we were laughing before we got started. Fiddler is a show with remarkably, I don't say remarkably little controversy, but there's not a ton of controversy that surrounds Fairly on the Roof. It's pretty universally adored. Um, But there are some interesting topics and things that are around the show that I think are worth talking about and exploring. And uh, one of those is that a lot of people uh, criticize the show as being um, kind of like shtetl for dummies and a little too, um, you know, ham handed, not accurate. And I, I don't want to say commercialized, but just like the clean, easy version of what that w- life was like and almost romanticizing it beyond what it should be romanticized as i think on a certain level uh so annika i'm just curious how how do you respond to to that critique of the show
1: i think it's a it's an interesting argument i i should say too as we said before but is also applicable to this situation Uh, neither Michael nor I have ancestry from this part of the world. We are neither of us Jewish. So when we're talking about this, we are not talking from a place that is a deeply personal family uh, source of knowledge. So with that caveat, um, I will say, I mean, I see what people are saying there. Um, One of the things that I came up across when I was doing the Sholem Aleichem research was that some of the criticism about Fiddler is how much they feel that they softened the original source material. The stories are a lot um, darker in some ways. um, And that Fiddler just takes the teeth out of it a little bit. Um, But what I would say is ultimately I mean I think the the Japan example you gave is such a good one. There's something that's so deeply moving about Fiddler and the portrait that it paints of a community and specifically a community that is uh persecuted. And I think what's really interesting about it when you read the script is it wears a lot of these, these elements very lightly, but also doesn't shy away from the complications in them. You know, I mean, I think the question of the religion and the idea of Tevye's relationship to God, his personal relationship to God, his personal relationship to Judaism, um, where the, the thing he wants most is to be able to have all this free time to study the holy books. Um, and the, But he also chats with God in a very kind of conversational way. It's, it's a very charming and warm portrait of someone who deeply cares about their culture and their religion. But I, I admire how much it, doesn't really necessarily come down one way or the other. I think with each of his daughters, Tevye has to undergo this very personal test of how much he's going to side with his love as a father for his children and wanting them to be happy in the best way that's possible. But also, you know, as a member of this community, as a, as a father who comes from this tradition where you don't get to just choose your own spouse, especially someone who's outside of the religion, And so, you know, he's trying to figure out what the best path is. Anyway, that is all to say, um, there's nothing that feels false to me about this script. Perhaps it's not exactly the most anthropologically sound uh, portrait of what life in a shtetl in this time would be. But I think that's fine for me because what it is, is a deeply human portrait of the people who are living under these circumstances. And I do think that's very valuable ultimately. And it is such a Jewish story. You know, these people are unapologetically Jewish. It does not have it both ways. It. It's not trying to shy away from anything while at the same time telling a story that is applicable to many communities, to many scenarios, to to many people who find within themselves this struggle between the beloved community in which they grew up and their own desires and instincts as a human person with human desires. So I think as that, it's a, a really great thing um, but I also will say, like, I think this is a show that probably suffers from something we talk about a lot, which is the bad production scenario, <laughs> you know? I think probably a lot of people uh, have encountered this show in a less good production, where it's, you know, people with payas taped to the side of their, of their heads, and probably overplaying the kind of what we know of as the Jewish stereotypes, which you can find in here if you look, but they're not on the surface. So, so I'm not sure, you know, there's probably a lot that can be exaggerated and made to feel especially cartoonish and um, uh, shtetl kitsch as they say. So I don't think that's really in the script myself. Again, not coming from a scenario in which I know a ton about this particular time and place. Um, but I do think what it, what it does achieve as a story, as a human story, as a story of a person in a community, a religious community is a beautiful portrait and a meaningful portrait.
0: I think it's easy probably to uh, to critique the show on that level, too, because there uh, is so much Borscht Belt type comedy within it, particularly with the original production and Zero Mostel. And that's like part of what there is that ingrained kind of um, style and approach to um the writing of it in some ways, but I think I would agree with you that I don't, um, I think its universality is, is really beautiful and part of the strength of the show and why it works. And I, I don't think it sacrifices one for the other. I think it does a really wonderful job in its specificity, I would say. If not, maybe always, you know, a documentary version of what it was like to live in the shuttle. Um, I think it, it does a very good job theatricalizing it and humanizing it and, you know, making it accessible
1: yeah, although it's interesting because I read somewhere that one of the books that was very helpful to them when they were writing the show was um a Margaret Mead account of life in the shtetl which I think is is sort of interesting that that they had trouble accessing this world through the stories alone they had to have the help of someone who was an anthropologist who was able to kind of describe the world um with a more removed eye so that they could create that world and then dive into the specificity of the stories.
0: Well, and Jerome Robbins in his own research for the dance world of the, the piece as well, like does a lot of that and um, watching, there's a great documentary um, Miracle of Miracles that really chronicles the journey of the show. And there's so much, I mean, the the amount of time and effort they put into honoring the traditions of, of Jewish culture and particularly Russian Jewish culture Um, I think is really fantastic and and good of them. And I think part of the reason the show resonated with so many people at the time uh, and continues to resonate with people today, because that that question of heritage, while not uh, explicit in the original production or explicit in the script, uh, is certainly something that uh, uh, future productions have played with and really examined. But there are a lot of things, I think, that are on the periphery of Fiddler that um, beyond just that, I mean, I think also in some ways the civil rights movement is being looked at. I mean, obviously we're in the middle of the sixties and like the persecution of black Americans is certainly something that is being discussed and debated as a culture. So there's that element, but there's also this element of the women's movement and how like the feminine mystique had only come out like a year or two before Fiddler and the authors have acknowledged that the role of women in the piece and their agency is something that they didn't directly, you know, respond to the women's movement, but was certainly on the periphery of their thoughts as they were creating the show that is quite female centric. And I mean, yes, Tevya is the role, but he's got five daughters and Golda and Yenta, and it's really centrally about the three, the you know, the three oldest daughters and their various paths in romance and, um, and how he reckons with that and their choice of love versus their um, the tradition of matchmaking and, and what that is. So I think there is a lot challenging the cultural norm of women and what women can be versus what they were supposed to be, I think is, is something that even though it's not the same, there are certainly parallels and certainly echoes and rhymes of the culture of the 1960s.
1: Yeah. It's such an interesting show. Um, as I mentioned before, the script is so beautifully written. It's very simple. It's not full of extra stuff, but it also really manages to avoid coming down very hard on either side. There's a version of the show that's like, tradition is silly and and oppressive. And there's a version of the show that's like, we are losing tradition and that's super bad. And the show manages to, to walk right between those things in such an elegant way. I find that as a viewer of it, um, and when I was reading it again for this, one of the things that's so interesting is that I really struggled with the decisions by the daughters, you know? I, I felt for Tevia that, um, you know, because I think it gets progressively more complicated, right, Seidel just wants to be with Model, who's someone who's in the community, who's been raised with her, who's very religious, he's a good boy, he's just poor. So that's very clear. And then Perchik is a, is a revolutionary who's going to take her away. But then Hava is actually choosing someone who's not Jewish and is part of the group that is oppressing them actively. So I can understand why he is so reluctant to allow this. Um Especially when it gets further on, you know, I found myself struggling, kind of, through Tevya about what would I do in the same scenario because I think it's a hard thing to say. You know, on the one hand, these women are choosing their own destinies; they've fallen in love and they want to choose who they marry. But on the other hand, they are making choices that are going to damage this community, uh, potentially. You know, that are going to take them away from their home and their families. Um, and they're so young, which obviously is not really relevant for Tevia because this is when people get married in that culture. But you know, there's part of me that that was with Tevia in that way, where it's like, is this the right choice to make? So the fact that I think you have these debates while you're reading this script and while you're watching the show just speaks to what a beautiful job they've done. Is because you you can be asking these very complicated questions and and working them out within yourself. And I think different productions will come down on different sides. Um, I know some of them have had the daughters be very, very sort of dark feeling about matchmaker and the idea that they're going to be given a match, they don't get to choose, which I think is not really fair to probably what that situation was because matchmaking in my, from what I've understood of it and was often something that was, not a negative thing necessarily, it was just kind of how it was and you really were hoping that you got someone who was great and sometimes you did. Um, anyway, that is all to say, it's it's a really interesting book that manages to ask these questions and struggle with these issues in a very nuanced and complicated way that is so beautiful.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring that up too because I kind of take the opposite tack almost every time where I, you know, by the time Tevia can't speak to Hava, I am... I'm so angry with Tevye, um, and I think he's so wrong. And I understand, you know, I I understand that it's, he's being persecuted by the Russians and, and all that, but I I get so angry with him over that. And I almost can't forgive him for that by the end of the show. Um, even I mean, it's pretty close to the end of the show that that happens, but it feels so, it like fills me with a certain kind of um, anger, you know, toward him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the Hava moment is supposed to be harsh. It's supposed to be heartbreaking because Tavi has been nothing but warm and loving. And, and so he's so great. And then he does this very black and white thing that basically cuts out his daughter. Do- I mean, I think it is supposed to be heartbreaking, but I also understand how he gets to that point because...
0: Well, he he's going to have been so far... His back will break. I mean, he does such a good job. I think speaking about it, but I just it's like it's like unforgivable. It's like almost unforgivable for me. I'm so angry with him because I
1: yeah with
0: him for so you know it's it does such a good job. I think in that
1: yeah, it does such a good job.
0: I think the last topic to talk about as we get into the the cultural debate within the show about um, Jewish culture and um, the ethnicity of being Jewish and what that means and there's often controversy surrounding the casting of fiddler on the roof and uh whether or not fiddler on the roof is a show that should only feature uh jewish people and people of the jewish race not just religion but the jewish race um, which is a in and of itself a complex conversation that i think a lot of people actually aren't attuned to but that aside, there is a lot of conversation about the authenticity of the casting of Fiddler on the Roof, and should people who are not Jewish be allowed to perform the show and be in the show and work on the show, and or should it be all Jewish people? But I guess, Annika, I'm curious, we are certainly in a moment in time where we are reckoning with a lot of these things about authenticity on stage, and um, how do you think Fiddler on the Roof fits into that discussion?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting one. Um, I mean, I think that if it's students, especially, I always kind of err on the side of students should have greater leeway to do it because I do believe that theater is ultimately teaching radical empathy. I think the best way you can truly feel for um, the suffering or the experience of another person is to play a part in which you're coming from a different experience. I think that can be tremendously valuable to uh student's growth as just human beings. So I, I do think that that is something that there should be more freedom in that world, certainly. You know, when you're doing a professional fiddler, I mean, I know there was a production in 2004 or 2005 that was famously not <laughs> cast with Jewish people. I think if you're doing it on Broadway, come on, you can have... Jewish people. I mean, I think there's an special resonance to having a cast that you know reflects the ancestry of this particular story. Um, so I think if you're if you're professional and you have the option of casting Jewish people, you should you should try to do that to the best of your ability. If you have students, and especially in this day and age where I think Judaism is, you know, suddenly anti-Semitism seems to be a debatable thing in our country, which is insane.
0: I mean, I will, I, yeah, I mean, there are also, uh, one of the facts of the world, um, and America is that there are still more hate crimes directed at Jewish people than any other minority in the country. And I think that's something that people forget and, um, that isn't talked about as much, um, when, you know, we're reckoning with a lot in terms of our culture and racism within the culture and, uh, you know, all, all of those things. But anti-Semitism is still very much a belief and value that many people hold in this country that is, on a, you know, unacceptable. So I, I, I think there is a certain level of... Uh, Honoring the Jewish culture and the, the race and the ethnicity and the religion by having that authenticity in professional productions. And that brings us to our favorite things.
2: These are a few of my favorite things.
0: Where we share some of our favorite things about Fiddler on the Roof. So, Annika, who's your favorite character in Fiddler on the Roof?
1: I mean, this is so boring. I'm so sorry. No, like you not
0: say Tevya? How can you not say Tevya? <laughs>
1: Tevia is such a great character and I love him so much.
0: I mean, I love Yenta just because I love the concept yep. of Yenta, but I mean, Tevia is such a complex role. And so, I mean, yep. I mean.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's hard not to love that character. He's just, he's so warm. He's so wonderful, but also shout out to Golda too, because Golda is really the perfect foil for Tevia Um she's holding it down you know and she even though she can kind of be cold where Tevya is warm it's like you know that they need each other in that real way they they complement each other so perfectly so golda is also great but yeah Tevia, i love
0: runner up to frumacera
1: frumacera obviously
0: so that will bring us to favorite song what's your favorite song in fiddler on the roof
1: oh this is hard it's such a good score um It's hard for me to get through Far From the Home I Love without crying because it definitely goes in the sort of, especially like dad and daughter moments in musical theater that make me cry. Um, But I have to give it to um, life, to life.
0: I love that choice. I love that choice.
1: It's such a great, joyous song. I mean, I love Tradition too and I think it's one of the best opening numbers of all time. But like, I really love just surrounding myself with the joy of to life and that whole number is so great i just love it so i'm gonna pick that
0: yeah i mean i think and i was gonna say like i love tradition i love matchmaker it's a great i love matchmaker um and i love the music of the wedding dance and the bottle dance it's like such incredible music but my favorite song is Tevia's dream because I think it is such brilliant musical theater in terms of like the way he's going to lie to Golda and say that this is why she can't marry laser wolf. I think it's brilliant. And I sing it to myself all the time. I think it's brilliantly staged. I mean, Jerome Robbins and like the work that he did on Fiddler is just, I mean, we'll get into that in the next section probably, but I, I think the, the Taylor Zoyle, like, and the whole Firmicera bit. I mean, I just think it's brilliant musical theater.
1: It's brilliant. And it's so ridiculous. And yet it's so perfect.
0: So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Fiddler on the Roof?
1: All right. My favorite miscellaneous is a line that's almost at the end of the show. And it just destroys me every time I hear it. And it's so brilliant on so many levels. So that line is... Uh, Tevye's line at the end of scene seven of act two when they've just sung Anatevka because they're leaving Anatevka Golda says eh, it's just a place Mendel says and our forefathers have been forced out of many many places at a moment's notice and Tevye shrugs and says maybe that's why we always wear our hats and it's there's something so poignant to me about that line because it's a callback to a line Tebya has said at the very beginning that you think it's a throwaway joke because it's after tradition and he says why do we always wear hats and he says I don't know it's tradition right so you think it's never going to come back but it comes back in this incredibly moving way which is that the Jewish people have to move so constantly because they're so constantly persecuted throughout history that they always wear their hats because they always have to leave. I mean, it just, it's such a perfect line on so many levels. It just knocks your knees out from under you because it's so simple and it's not even delivered for great pathos. I mean, Tevye shrugs when he says it. Um, it's, the, it's one of the best callbacks in musical theater, I think maybe in all of theater, because it just brings something back that was originally a joke. And here it's not a joke in such a moving way. And I just love that line so much.
0: I think that's a brilliant choice. And I'm so glad you brought it because I've always loved that line as well, because there is an element to it that is a little bit of a joke, but it it rings so true. And it rings so like, uh, it. it, I even got chills as you were reading it because it's just so poignant and so... I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's terrific. I, I love that as a miscellaneous thing.
1: What is your favorite miscellaneous thing?
0: So I am obsessed with in 2004, when that revival was on Broadway, um, there was another sh- little show on Broadway called Avenue Q. And mm-hmm. for those of you who do not know, there is for every um, year Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS does, um, a fundraiser called the Easter bonnet where um, they raise money at their shelves and then they come together and they do performances with their big Easter bonnets. It's a, it's a big like charity thing for their Easter bonnet performance Avenue Q and Fiddler on the Roof did a mashup of their two shows starring both casts, featuring the puppets, doing takes on the other show, but it, it is like a brilliant eight minutes of musical theater sketch comedy and it's on youtube and it is such a delight and i it makes me smile i think about it so frequently um and it's like so unexpected but delightful and silly and all the things so i that is probably my favorite miscellaneous thing about fiddler on the
1: roof that's an excellent one there's a lot of good miscellaneous stuff i have to say there's In a similar vein, there's a mashup trailer that somebody has done using footage from the Fiddler on the Roof movie, but against the trailer of a movie called You Got Served, which is truly hilarious and delightful, available on YouTube. And also I wanna give a mini shout out to um, Al Silber, who played Seidel in the 2015 revival. Um, She wrote a book called After Anatevka, which follows Huddle, Uh, after she leaves to go to Siberia and Perchik and it's really beautiful and just expands the universe in a gorgeous gorgeous way so there's a lot around Fiddler on the Roof that, that really is a candidate for this category and poke around and you'll find some great things
0: and now it's time for Corner of the Sky
1: Gotta find my corner
2: of the sky
0: where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. So Fiddler is definitely considered one of the A-list classics of American musical theater without question. So that for its craftsmanship of songwriting, book writing, you know, the whole nine yards, it is um, definitely up there and that is one of its, you know, part of its corner. I'm going to go out, this is a bit of a hot take, but I have I have a search, I have evidence to back it up. I think that part of Fiddler's Corner of the Sky is is that it is Jerome Robbins' masterpiece of direction. And I say that because obviously, like, West Side Story is a masterpiece. And it's a masterpiece for because of Jerome, Jerome Robbins, because of the choreography, and because of just the nature of what it set out to do and his conception and all that. But I think Fiddler is... Almost more impressive because it wasn't born out of the mind of Jerome Robbins and something that he wanted to do. He was approached with it, he brought his entire self to it, and it doesn't have nearly as much dance as West Side Story does. Dance certainly carries a lot of the story, and there are iconic moments of dance, but that is not a foregone conclusion when you look at the script of Fiddler on the Roof. So, I think for that reason, it is such an achievement on his part that he can bring so much of himself to the piece and leave such an indelible mark on the piece that we can hardly imagine the piece without his work, particularly of the choreography, but in general, the way that he helped shape the show dramaturgically and how he really was the leader of the team. Um, So I, it is a little bit of a false headline hot take, but I do think that that is part of the reason that it is such an important piece of musical theater. And it's his last original musical on Broadway. Um, and in some ways, the most successful. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I guess, the most successful. So I, I think that has a large part of why Fiddler on the Roof is the classic that it is.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I, I also want to say, too, that I think it probably is the most influential, certainly, possibly the best opening number of a musical of all time. I, I think so many uh, shows have tradition in their DNA. People have credited it openly. I mean, I know, you know, I don't think you would have had Ragtime's opening number without tradition. I don't think you certainly wouldn't have had In the Heights's opening number, which Lynn has been very open about. Um, you know, there's, there's so many shows that I think benefited from what Fiddler was able to do, which is really, uh, paint this portrait of a community right off. And also, I mean, even though it is a little bit controversial, as we discussed, like as a, it's a portrait of Jewish life. And at the end, certainly it's very, uh, there's darkness that is there and the persecution is certainly there, but I feel like a lot of the stories about Jewish people that we get are about the Holocaust, are about um, genocide, are about people who have already had their lives ripped apart. But Fiddler has the nostalgia in that it it is a portrait of a community that is working as a community works before it's really being... Shattered apart, and that's invaluable because you get to see the joy and you get to see the love and you get to see what is ultimately lost in many of these communities before it is lost.
0: Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Fiddler on the Roof, which is such a delight. i just I really enjoy the show. I think it's such a wonderful piece of music theater that just like bursts with life and complexity, so it's been a joy,
1: to- yeah. It really is. It makes me miss my dad too.
0: I know. It's like, it's so, there's so much family like love in it that it does kind of, yeah. But we do have one last segment, which is what comes next? What comes next? So, Anika, what is going to come next? What show are we going to dive into for our 15th episode?
1: Well, we have a special treat for our 15th episode which is that we're going to do something a little bit different in honor of this robust occasion.
0: Can you believe we've done 15? Or we will oh. by the end of that episode. That'll be our 15th episode. I kind of can't believe that.
1: I can't believe that either. It's crazy.
0: To the listening audience, I'm sure that does not feel like the most amazing milestone to you, but it just, <laughs> for us, it is kind of crazy.
1: <laughs> well, it goes into this year, too, where it's like it feels like we just started and also like we've been doing this for... 11,000 years. Yeah.
0: So what, what are we going to do to mark this special occasion?
1: Out of appreciation for our uh, listeners slash readers slash members slash spotlights slash theater nerds slash we clearly should come up with a name for our, our people here. Yeah, feel
0: free to write in with suggestions for what you want to be called fan ba- adoring fan base.
1: Adoring fan base are <laughs> in the spotlight stands. Um We are going to let you choose what our next episode is about, but we're going to let you choose out of these three shows. Fling, do you want to give them the three shows?
0: How about we do it in alphabetical order? And we are not counting article adjectives in this (laughs) alphabetizing. So the first option will be Camelot with music by Frederick Lowe and book and lyrics by Alan J. Lerner a bit of a chestnut of the musical theater canon that uh, is definitely uh, not perfect, but beloved nonetheless, and uh, would be fun to dive into.
1: The second option is the Jellicle musical, Cats. Me nee, 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 nee. By Andrew Lloyd Webber and T.S. Eliot, who I'm fascinated to know in the afterlife what he thinks of this show. Uh, this will be an interesting one to talk about because I worked on it for many months and learned many interesting things about it and have talked about it a lot more in my life than I ever thought I probably would.
0: And people are always shocked that there is a story to cats and that I know the story of cats. So um, there's, there's, there's fun. And then there are hills if that is your choice.
1: Yes. And for the third option, fling.
0: And the third option is a chorus line. We went with all C's. With uh, music by Marvin Hamlish, lyrics by Ed Cleven, and a book by James Kirkwood Jr. and Nicholas Dante. Um, of course, one of the all time classics of musical theater, uh, and certainly a ton of history and uh, things to explore with that one.
1: Yes, we will probably, in all likelihood, do all three of these shows at some point in this podcast but the question is which one do you want to hear first
0: so you can check out Goodspeed's social media channels and our social media channels which are debuting this week um for that you can follow just in the spotlight um but check out those channels and make your voice heard write your senators
1: yeah this is clearly the most important issue happening in this country right now
0: this when, when everyone's talking about vote, they're not talking about the presidential election. They're talking about what's the 15th episode of In the Spotlight going to be.
1: I think it's pretty obvious that's true.
0: Clearly. Clearly. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye,
1: everyone. Bye, everyone.
0: This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Bury Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time.